The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, Episode 61. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Make it Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Howdy all, Father Corey Stika. Different voice uh, beginning this podcast this week uh, because I've been given command of the space station. I mean, Dom is off on a little bit of a vacation very much needed vacation uh this week on risa with his family yes. very risa has gone very family friendly now kind of lost like las vegas did for a while yeah exactly they, they say they can make some more money doing that obviously i'm not alone as you can hear jimmy is with me how's it going jimmy going just fine uh this is actually a good opportunity for us um because of course we're fans of star trek and been fans of star trek for a long time but there's another science fiction series out there uh that we both enjoy that dom is isn't as familiar with, although I think hopefully yeah. after listening to this episode, he'll get started binge watching it. Yeah. And that's Babylon five. And you know, for those of you who know Babylon five, you, you're going, no, wait a second. That Babylon five is a lot like deep space nine. And yeah, yeah it kind of is. And what we'll talk about that here in a minute. Uh, but we thought as we were discussing this uh, with Dom, that this would be a good time to maybe do a comparison of the two series. Cause there are a lot of similarities. But just kind of starting, first of all, with the kind of the behind the scenes of these two series, Babylon 5 was developed by J. Michael Straczynski uh, and produced by Warner Brothers. And it first aired, the pilot first aired in 1993, but the rest of the series, five seasons worth, didn't open until 1994. So it had the pilot movie, and then there was a bit of time before the season start. And in, it's one of those interesting series because, as J. Michael Straczynski himself said, Babylon 5 has always been conceived as fundamentally a five-year story, a novel for television, which makes it very different as well. So it's, you know, it's kind of a thing now where all these, all these series have long-going arcs, you know, and they're developed for a couple of years. That was fairly new for television at the time. Yeah, B5 was the show that really introduced that into mainstream television. You previously, you'd had... Kind of two sorts of shows that mm -hmm. uh, all shows were designed to be f run forever. You right. really didn't have, you had miniseries like um, some of those James Clavell novels got adapted into miniseries or Rich Man, mm -hmm. Poor Man in the 70s. But those were just a few episodes. Um, they weren't designed to run for multiple years. And anything that was designed to run for multiple years either hit the reset button at the end of every episode like mm -hmm. most sitcoms, so there's no real right. development over the course of the series. Or, if it was a soap opera, it would have um, ongoing storylines, but they, there wasn't an end point that the whole series was working towards. So, no. B5 was new in that, okay, this is a limited series, but it's longer than a miniseries. Correct. And we're heading somewhere that's going to put the definitive period at the end of this sentence. Exactly. Exactly. You know, after five years, assuming that they wanted to renew it, 
he would have said, no, this the story's done. We've told the story. That's basically what happened. And they said, but I have this other series we could do that's set in the same universe. Right. That really wasn't that successful, unfortunately. But uh, I think this is more common for like British television, though, to do something like this, where they will do a series in this way, where it will be like one season or two seasons, and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't get extended. Now, switching over to Deep Space Nine, this was developed by Rick Berman and Michael Piller, who were both involved with TNG. Star Trek Next Generation, produced by Paramount in the Star Trek universe, of course. Uh, Its pilot first aired in January 1993, so a month before Babylon 5. But the pilot was the first episode of the season. And of course, it went seven seasons from 1993 to 1999. Yeah. Deep Space Nine is interesting. And I wonder if Babylon, we'll have to talk about this, but I wonder if Babylon 5 influenced Deep Space Nine in this way, where it started out more episodic. Mm-hmm. There was kind of the overarching story and everything, you know, just the behind the scenes story, so to speak. But there were it was a typical episodic format with some major themes that were played out. But eventually it moved more to the story arc format like Babylon 5 when you look at the Dominion War. Yeah. The, originally, it was planned to basically be Star Trek set on a space station. So whereas the original Star Trek series and next generation you could compare to you could think of them as gene roddenberry did as wagon Mm -hmm. train to the stars what wagon train was it was a western that was about a wagon train bringing people from one place in the east out west and you had certain recurring characters who were the main people driving the wagon train but then you had the guest cast that they would be interacting with who were like travelers on the wagon train and so the 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 original series and next gen were both there were they were never heading to a destination but they were traveling from place to place right with our regulars interacting with guest cast deep space 9 by comparison is more like gunsmoke mm-hmm. gun gunsmoke is set in one town it's yep. in dodge city we've got our regulars and then we have travelers coming through the town Mm-hmm. interacting with the sheriff and Miss Kitty and Festus and everybody. And yep. so that's essentially the model for Deep Space Nine. It's here's our Dodge City. We've got, yep. you know, Captain Cisco, he's the sheriff. He's the Matt Dillon one. Yep. And then we've <clears throat> we even have Quarks running the equivalent of Miss Kitty's. Yep. And then we have travelers coming through as the guest cast. But there's no end point required. There wasn't right. an end point to gunsmoke. And originally, it wasn't envisioned that there was going to be an end point to Deep Space Nine. They had an idea, okay, next gen, we're thinking mm-hmm. it's going to run for seven series or so, and so we're, we're going to try to do that here. But right. they didn't have uh, an overarching story, really, I don't think, until Ira Stephen Burr took over right. as showrunner and started giving it that. Yeah, some like third or fourth season when they, they started moving towards the Dominion War storyline and everything in, in the Paw Race and all that. And, yeah. of course, we'll talk about them in a little bit as well. We we so, should, though, back up and talk about how the shows got started, how the original pitches worked. Yeah, actually, I was just going to ask, what would be a pitch that you would give for, like, Babylon 5 if you were to go to the suits and promote it? Well, I, it's basically the United Nations in space. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got this meeting of a- different alien races at this one location to try to prevent war. Right. That's the base. And it's in just like the United Nations was formed after a huge war. Mm-hmm. Babylon five, the Babylon project was established after a huge war to prevent another one. 
And Straczynski has talked about how he got the idea for Babylon 5, even it predates by law by quite a number of years, Deep Space Nine. Right. This is one of the things that led to plagiarism charges. Yep. Because what happened was Straczynski had been a successful showrunner for other programs, notably Murder, She Wrote. Mm, that's right. And had also done some science fiction. He did a show called Captain Power. He got his start writing in animation for the real Ghostbusters. And he kind of worked his way up the Hollywood ladder to being a showrunner. And he wanted to do science fiction. And he had a couple of ideas for a series. One of them involved kind of like a, a trading post. Mm. And one of them involved empires rising and falling. And as he tells the story, he was in the shower one day and the two ideas collided in his head and he realized this is one story. I can use the trading post outpost thing as the way of telling the story of the empires rising and falling. Mm -hmm. And so that coalesced in his mind in the shower and he immediately got out and started writing a bunch of notes that became the basis of Babylon 5. And he always planned it to do what it did, which was give us this space station that's basically the United Nations, Mm -hmm. and then get us into a war so it fails in its mission, but then we lead it leads to something better and greater over time. And so you have the empires rising and falling and a new stable situation after the war. But he realized he could never sell that as an idea to a network. No no Mm -hmm. network is going to buy this five-year novel for television because Every series is open-ended at this point. Right. And so what he did in now, if you've ever watched the the pilot for Babylon 5, The Gathering, mm-hmm. one of the recurring themes in it is everybody lies. And <laughs> and so he took that to heart in writing the series Bible for right. Babylon 5. I have a copy of the series Bible. And so it's like what was given to the network suits to tell them what this series is about. And it basically kind of describes the first season of the show, but one of the points he makes in the Bible is that, um, or writer's guide to use the Mm -hmm. more formal term for it, is that there's always going to be these rumors about a big war starting that it's that it's Babylon Five's job to prevent, and we never and the war never actually starts. And it's like he knew that was totally false. That was going to change in the second season. Yeah. But he couldn't tell the networks that was going to happen in the second season. And so he did explicitly denied it, that the war was ever going to start in the series pitch. Right. Um, he then spent five years shopping it around. So this is like mid-80s when mm-hmm. he's starting to do this. Um, he spent five years shopping the series around to different networks, including Paramount. Gee, who do we know that was run by Paramount? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Star Trek people work there. And so even though the Babylon 5 pilot aired a month after the Deep Space Nine pilot, Babylon 5 had actually been pitched to the Paramount suits several Mm -hmm. years earlier. Right. And given the similarities between the two series that we're going to talk about, J. Michael Straczynski immediately suspected some kind of plagiarism. Correct. Um, and now uh, he eventually concluded that he doesn't think that the original showrunners for Deep Space Nine were in on the plagiarism. He thinks that they were just pitching a similar idea, but he, given the kind of uncanny similarities, he thinks 
that um, the suits Mm -hmm. at Paramount remembered the Babylon 5 pitch and kind of steered Deep Space Nine to be more like Babylon 5 than it otherwise would have been. Exactly. And, And then once the series were both on the air, he suspected further copying between the series mm-hmm. because he start he was telling his pre-plotted war story and then Babylon 5 starts its war story that's very mm-hmm. similar empires rising and falling and and it's the first time that's ever been done on Star Trek and he said that he subsequently said that at Babylon 5 they felt like okay we're going to we're doing our thing here and then a year or two later B5 picks it up out of the dumpster and does it again. Yeah. And and so he felt like both at the inception of the show and as the show's developed, there was some copying on the Deep Space Nine part of what he was doing with Babylon 5. Exactly. And he, he did say that he didn't blame, you know, Berman and Pillar. He, you know, right. he says, you can imagine the way the pitch would have gone where, you know, they go to suits there in Paramount and say, you know, Star Trek Next Generation is doing well. We're, you know, we're showing it all over the world and you're making lots of money off of it. We want to do another Star Trek series. And the suits immediately go, we've got an idea for you, you know, and it's that kind of thing, you know, where maybe the idea, even the idea of doing it as a space station initially for this, this second Next Generation series wasn't part of the initial pitch, but it did become part of it really quickly. Yeah, and I don't know. That may have been part of it. You know, how can we do it different than just another ship flying through space? Well, let's try right. a space station or a planet or something. Um, but then, oh, let's give it a name with a number in it. Babylon 5, Deep Space 9. Yeah. And let's put this big special effecty wormhole right next to it you know we won't call it a jump gate we'll call it a wormhole wormhole yep and let's make it a cross section for all these different cultures and it's in the wake of a war and it's trying to prevent more wars and stuff like that now both both series were in syndication ds9 um was not tied to any particular network that's voyager when they decided to play that game Warner Brothers picked up Babylon 5 as kind of the the flagship for their prime time entertainment network, P10. P10, yeah. Which that sounds so 1990s of a title, (laughs) but it became kind of the flagship for that series. And again, Paramount thought, hey, this is a great idea. We want to have our UPN. Let's use Voyager for that. Mm, That worked out well. Um, (laughs) So there's actually an article out there Jimmy found kind of interesting called deep space nine and babylon five remarkably similar or similarly remarkable and it's very interesting that the parallels and we're, we're going to kind of discuss some of those uh because there are a lot of parallels some of which are you know by the necessity of the format if you will the uh, uh science fiction and kind of the popular trope some of them because it's military and some of them coincidental quote unquote now it's interesting if you look at the t- in-universe time for each of these series babylon five in-universe time is 2258 to 2262, which is actually roughly equivalent to Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Next Generation. Really almost exactly the same time as the original series. DS9, of course, is like 100 years later, 2369 yeah. to 2375. But of course, that's because it's a spinoff from Next Generation, mm-hmm. which was before that. So not a shock, since there are two series named for space stations. They're both based, based on a space station. Outside of Earth's solar system, managed by an Earth-based government, it's a major point of commerce, important point of interstellar travel, and in both military and civilian populations. 
Mm-hmm. So a lot of similarities there. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's like you said, Jimmy, it's very much this is, I think, where J. Michael Straczynski kind of went, OK, wait a second here. Yeah, I pitched this to these guys. This, this sounds very familiar. We, we should have probably a link to this um, article in the show notes for people yes. if they want to read it, because it has a lot of parallels that we won't be able to talk about here. Exactly. Some of the parallels are ones that developed over the course of time, and I don't think mm-hmm. they really go to the core of the question of how much borrowing there was. I think some of mm-hmm. them are just parallel invention. Some of them are just coincidence. Like uh, One of the parallels they note is both... Um, series have a everyman character right whose name starts with mi so yeah. you've got the everyman miles o'brien on deep space nine and the everyman michael garibaldi on Correct. babylon five and okay yeah they are both everyman working class characters but i i, I don't think the mi is i think that's just coincidence especially since miles o'brien was a holdover character from tng he came yeah. from TNG and was kind of promoted, if you will, to uh, the chief of the station. So yeah, that that's there. There are a lot of coincidences in here, and yeah, I I don't think they're all significant, but some no. of them are significant. Well, in 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 some of these that I that I mentioned here, where you know you've got the military and civilian population, it's a major point of commerce, point of interstellar travel. That's a trope in science fiction, anyways. That you're going to have a station that's this major point of commerce and so on because it's you know it's just taking yeah. again using the old west the old west uh, analogy like a, a town like fort apache or something yeah a railroad depot in the middle of middle of nowhere montana is going to be an important point of commerce because that's where the railroad stops yeah that's where the wormhole comes out or the yep. jump gate comes out exactly so it's it's that's that's more of a trope than it is an actual i would I, i'd argue it, a duplication now again these are military controlled or at least military-run stations. So, of course, you're going to have a commander. Mm-hmm. And one, one interesting thing with Babylon 5 that you don't see so much in Deep Space Nine, although there are some, Deep Space Nine didn't have as much turnover of its major characters as Babylon 5 did. Oh, yeah. Well, and one reason for that is because Babylon 5 was late getting the go-to-show order because mm-hmm. they aired the pilot, and then it was like a year before they got the go-to-show order. And so a lot of the options had expired for the right. people who filmed the pilot. They had to recast a bunch of roles. And then at the end of the first season, the lead actor, Michael O'Hare, and we didn't know this for years afterwards right. until after he died, he developed paranoid schizophrenia mm-hmm. and could not continue filming the show. So he had to be replaced. Exactly. And he played uh, Jeffrey Sinclair. He was the first commander in both the pilot and the, the first season. Yeah. By the way, notice they're both commanders, not captains. When correct. we start out and then we both later, they become captains, captains, correct, because then Jeffrey Sinclair's replacement is Bruce Boxleitner playing Captain John Sheridan. And he's he again, you know, you're moving up the ranks here. Mm-hmm. Now, talk about uh, John Sheridan, because he is kind of an important figure in the whole story arc, at least as it became, I guess, rewritten once the change was made. Yeah. Um. So one of the th- one of the ways that. J. Michael Straczynski developed the show. He wanted, he, he recognized that in the world of TV production, you could have actors become unavailable mm-hmm. for various reasons. Either they weren't working out or some other reason. And given that he wanted to tell a unified story, he didn't want his story thrown off too much if he had to replace an actor. And right. so he built in what he thought of as trap doors. 
mm-hmm. for each actor. So if an actor needs to go away, he pulls the trap door, that character vanishes, and we introduce a new character that can play basically their same function in the story. And so there were actually trap doors for every single one of the characters in the main cast mm-hmm. on Babylon 5. Incidentally, that's the role of all the ambassadors' assistants that we have. If the if any of the ambassadors ever couldn't, the actor couldn't continue with the series, right. you would just have their assistant move up. Exactly. And there's even one character who gets double trapped doored. You had in the original pilot, you had uh, Patricia Tallman playing the telepath oh, leader, Lita yes. Alexander. She then couldn't do the series, so they introduce a new commercial telepath, Talia Winters. But then when Talia Winters goes away, they bring back Lita Alexander. And so you have the double trapdoor with her. In the case of the original commander for Babylon 5, uh, Jeffrey Sinclair, he was this wounded war veteran who had a mysterious thing happen to him in the last climactic fight with the Mimbari, the race we'd Mm -hmm. been warring with. He didn't know what happened to him. And over the course of time, it was going to be revealed that there was this he played a much more significant role in Mimbari culture than he even knew. In fact, he's destined to go back in time and become their major religious leader. Right. And they actually pulled that off on the show, even though the actor mm-hmm. couldn't continue. They managed to pay off that storyline. But then when he needed to go away, they needed a new character who also could be tied to the overarching story in some personal way. And so they brought in his replacement, Bruce Boxleitner, as Captain John Sheridan, who was also wounded because his wife had vanished mysteriously and died in this expedition to another planet that turned out to be of one of the races, the Shadows, who were Mm -hmm. involved in the upcoming war. So he had personal stakes in the conflict as well. Right. And of course, it's interesting when we talk about parallels, there's a parallel between Captain Sheridan and Commander Sisko, where his wife died in the war with the Borg. That that's the one where it's backwards. But he does. He we at least starting out, both stations have commanders who were wounded psychologically in mm-hmm. a devastating war by an overpowering enemy. Either the Mimbari in one case and the Borg in the other. Exactly. And then later on in the fifth season, there's Elizabeth Lockley, Captain Elizabeth Lockley, who comes in because it's been a while, but Sheridan goes off to fight the war, basically, wasn't it? Well, he Sheridan has fought the war and he becomes the head of the New Earth Alliance, uh, the Interstellar Alliance. So he's now become a politician and he would have been replaced by his assistant, Susan Ivanova. But that actress decided at that point to leave the series, and mm-hmm. so they brought in a new Earth captain, Elizabeth Lockley. So this is a good place to uh, transition on to the next uh, character or set of characters and the second command of the, the station. And both series have very strong female second-in-commands. Strong is an understatement. Yeah, exactly. Those who are familiar, DS9 are familiar with Major slash Colonel Kira. Of course, she gets a promotion throughout the series. In uh, Babylon 5, at least for the first four seasons, it's got Lieutenant Commander Susan Ivanova, who I would argue is a very beloved mm-hmm. character on Babylon 5 because she's got some really good uh, one-liners and, and quotes that you can go find on YouTube. They're, they're, she, she's, a funny char- she's a fun character. Yeah, she, she has the same kind of abrasiveness that Kira does, but she gets better zingers. Yeah, And that's something Straczynski commented on was that I remember reading back when the show was in production, he commented in the upcoming season, you know, um, Ivanova will continue to get the best lines. Oh, yeah. 
and she's she's very Russian. Very, very. <laughs> Despite her totally American accent. Yeah, yeah she's exactly. Attitudinally Russian. Oh, yes. And, that, and it makes her a lot of fun. And, you know, again, this is one of these places you wonder if this was a, again, a coincidence. Actually, no, Ivanova was not in the pilot, was she? No, she was one. It, it was the original character was also a female second in command who was played by Tamlin Tamita, an Asian actress. And then she, her option, I guess, expired when they got the series go order. And so the Susan Ivanova character was created and she eventually gets promoted to captain. And as we said, would have become the commander of the station in the fourth season. But there were some contract negotiations that mm-hmm. didn't succeed. And she ended up leaving, uh, though she's since uh, gotten she's on good terms with the show's creators now. Yeah, there there was a little bit of I guess there was a little bit of heartache going on at that moment. So it, unfortunately, that's that's Hollywood. There's you know yeah. stuff like that happen. Another, of course, you know, another major character are the doctors of these two mm-hmm. two series. So you got Doctor Bashir, Julian Bashir, and then there's Doctor Stephen Franklin, and both are interesting because they both have some backstories that don't really come out until later in the series. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, Julian Bashir with his issues with uh, actually being genetically modified despite being illegal, and then Stephen Franklin had a lot of issues with addiction. Yeah. In this this series, and which, that, which he overcomes. Yeah, which made him a very interesting character, I think, dealing with with that. That's one of the differences between uh, Star Trek and Deep Space Nine. I mean, between um, Star Trek and Babylon Five, mm-hmm. uh, Star Trek never shows us, except in the course of a single episode, any kind of addiction. And yeah. it's always overcome by the end of the episode. In the Babylon Five universe, people really do have addiction issues that they can struggle with for years mm-hmm. and in fact uh, two of the characters on babylon 5 have addiction issues the first one we learned about is michael garibaldi right who has alcohol issues and became a teetotaler as a result and he then at one point in the series tragically falls off the wagon mm-hmm. at a crucial moment um but then he gets his act back together again and the other is stephen franklin who falls into addiction through a, an, another psychologically plausible reason. It's in the middle of a war. He's a doctor. He's caring for wounded refugees. He needs mm-hmm. to stay awake to deal with the refugees. He needs to be at peak mental efficiency. And so he starts taking stimulants or stims yep. so he can function better as a doctor in a crisis situation. And he becomes addicted to the stims. Yep. And that's very psychologically plausible. He then has to g- get off of them. Um, and it's tragic. I mean, the, when this comes to uh, comes out, he's actually relieved of duty mm-hmm. and is just like, you're not getting back on duty until you have this lick. Yep. And he has to go through a journey. And both he and Garibaldi have this play out as a factor in their lives, not just, oh, yeah, I got addicted to do a video game for an episode and, mm-hmm. and then I got off of it. Yeah. Uh, and it's more psychologically believable. That's one of the things, and this is something I kind of wanted to mention, is Babylon 5 has a level of realism in certain respects that Star Trek did not have. And this was one of the things back in the 90s that really attracted me to Babylon 5 was the greater degree of realism that the characters were presented with. They were not all perfect, unlike Next Generation, let's say, or... (laughs) Which was kind of the apogee of that. Everyone on that show is perfect. Yep. Um, and they don't have interpersonal conflicts. It's also the reason that DS9, which started to break that mold, mm-hmm. attracted me 
because it's they are more psychologically complex than other Star Trek characters. But Babylon 5 was the one that really started showing characters in a sci-fi context that could right. do things you could never imagine on Star Trek. There's a um, an episode of Babylon 5, I think it's in season three, two or three, mm. where you have a character who has a crucial piece of information needed to catch a serial killer mm-hmm. that is on the station. And he is not willing to disclose that information. Mm. And so what happens is you have the, the captain, Captain Sheridan, and Michael Garibaldi, the security chief, have him in an interrogation room. He's sitting there. He's like, I'm not telling you guys what you want to know. Um, he's like a Centauri telepath who happened to catch a bit of the thoughts of the killer. Mm-hmm. So he has information in his head about the killer that they right. need to stop the killer. And um, he, he won't tell them. And so when they realize he will not tell them, Michael Garibaldi pulls out a black bag and mm. puts it over the head of the telepath mm. so he cannot see what's happening. And then a human telepath comes into the room and rips the information out of his brain. Mm. And the reason that they have to cover his head is because human telepaths are not allowed to do this. This is against the law. Mm. And so um, they have to shield the human telepath's identity from him. Right. And then they, the human telepath, it's Lita Alexander, she gets the information out of his head. She leaves the room. They take the bag off of his head and they go proceed to catch the serial killer. Right. Well, okay, they've just done this flagrantly illegal act to right. stop a series of murders. You cannot imagine Captain Picard doing this. No, no, not you at know, all. It's, uh, have Worf put a black bag over someone's head so Troy can come in and rip the information out of their brain. I mean, this would never happen on Next Gen. And, you know, and, and I think the closest DS9 ever came to it, at least as far as the Federation doing it, was the episode where they're, yeah. they're hunting down... Uh, Eddington. Cool. Eddington, yeah. Where Cisco has them launch this this torpedo full of some element that's toxic to Cardassians, but it turns out humans can live there because the Cardassians did that to a human plant, you know, and it still worked out okay in the end, you know, where just the, people had to move planets, basically. Yeah, I the the only episode where they do something really equivalent to this is in the pale moonlight, where Captain Cisco, even though he's uncomfortable with it, sanctions devious methods that lead to the death of a person in order to get the Ro- a couple of people in order to get the romulans on our side in a war that's right and um but that's way after this that's after babylon 5 is off the air so you really have to give babylon 5 credit mm-hmm. with introducing this level of realism and shadiness to the good guys um and but- even even then you still look at the characters on deep space 9 like cisco Yep. And they're still these kind of operatic, semi-perfect people, mm-hmm. despite the rough edges. Whereas yeah. on 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 Babylon Five, someone like Michael Garibaldi, he's just a broken human being. Exactly. Um, now I have to say, having given them credit for realism, I don't think they going back and rewatching um, Babylon Five with modern TV sensibilities. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a transitional right. thing. It is still it still has a lot of the operatic mm-hmm. stylized stuff in it, especially in the dialogue and things like that. It feels artificial in a way that later series like the rebooted Battlestar Galactica exactly. don't. 
um, the rebooted Battlestar Galactica went even farther in the realistic, tarnished humanity, good exactly. guys direction. And so you look back at Babylon 5, and it's kind of in the middle. It's not as gritty as, as Battlestar Galactica, but it's more realistic than Next Generation. Right. Well, and one thing uh, J. Michael Straczynski wrote is that he was aiming for adult science fiction, mm-hmm. you know, at least as he understood it at the time. And he actually put in parentheses, so no Wesley. He yeah. purposely called out Wesley Crusher. By the oh, way, yeah. the- he said, anytime we have a kid on the show, the kid is going to, or a cute robot, it's going to die. And actually, <laughs> that happened when we did have some kids on the show and they died. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, apparently, he was very active on, if you remember, Genie and CompuServe and AOL during the production of Babylon 5. I was active in the AOL B5 board when, when that was happening in the second, like in the second season. And I was there when mm-hmm. he joined that board, and I had just summarized, based on clues in the first season, I, I had a post where I said, here's what the overall shape of Babylon 5 is going to be, because that was the big guessing game at the time, right. was where is this all going to go? And I you know, think in terms of plot mechanics, and so I looked at the clues in season one, and I said, here's the overall shape of the season. It's going to be a story where the humans in the Mimbari have to come together and overcome their internal diversities between mm-hmm. the different human groups that don't like each other and the different Mimbari castes that don't like each other. And we're going to have to, between those groups, pull together a coalition that, that is able to challenge the shadows. And mm-hmm. the unity is going to be the key to the overall solution. And this was before the war had started. Right. So I saw the war, I saw all of this, and then Straczynski joins the board the next day and says, I've been reading the board and you guys are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know that he was referring to my post, but given that I just guessed exactly what was going to happen yep. over the next several seasons, I kind of wonder, was he, that's one of the things he was thinking well, about. There, there's a website, uh, jmsnews.com, where yes. they have archived all those old posts. Anything from, again, Genie, CompuServe, and AOL. Where you can go back, and it's fun to go back and look where he's actually producing it, and he's talking about the storylines and everything. So if you want to learn more about Babylon 5 than what we can cover in this podcast, go take a look at that. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible uh, to get kind of the behind the scenes. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons he was interested. He was deliberately active on the internet on this show in a way he hasn't been on others, and he said he kind of did it as sort of an an experiment in showing the public how the sausage gets made. Mm -hmm. He was interested in engaging the fan community and pulling back the curtain in a way that it hadn't before. Right. Well, because there was one post I saw where he talks about how the station is going to be CGI. It's going to be computer generated versus a Mm -hmm. model. And of course, that is one of the key distinctions for uh, production of Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine. Babylon 5 was all done on the external views, the space battle views and all that were all done on Amiga computers, which at the yeah. time were top-of-the-line computers, just now they're primitive, but DS9 yeah. was still using models, basically. And eventually, DS9 did start to use CGI. But that was much later on. One thing that I, and I, I would go back when the B5 was on the air, I would go to Comic-Con here in San Diego, mm-hmm. which then was, it was still massive, but it was not what it is today. Today, it's sure. just too overwhelming for me. Sure, sure. Um, but I would go, and every year, uh, JMS, J. Michael Straczynski, would have a presentation at Comic-Con, because he 
was from San Diego. He oh, sure. lived here in San Diego. And so he'd come back every year for Comic-Con and have a talk and show an episode that mm. was an upcoming major arc episode that had oh, not wow. been, it wouldn't be aired for a couple of months. And so you'd get to see where the story was going. It was so awesome. Eventually, the studios forced him to stop doing that mm. because so many people were attending his panel that it's like it became legally a commercial performance. Oh, sure. And the, the contracts didn't allow him to do commercial performances of the show. Sure, sure. But uh, I would go and he talked about, you know, the behind the scenes stuff. One of the things he talked about, I remember, was the CGI sets, because mm -hmm. he would always be pushing the CGI makers to uh, do better, mm -hmm. you know, to make it more realistic and stuff. And he told a story once about how he was reviewing some promotional footage that they had made for the series where like Bruce Boxleitner comes out on a darkened stage and there's a ladder and a rope and a light and he's just walking around the darkened stage talking about the show. And the the guys who were showing him the footage, you know, so he could approve it, so it could be released, um, said, "Is you know, do you, how does this footage look to you? And he said, oh, it looks fine. You don't see anything wrong with it? Oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's a virtual set, you schmuck. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had punked him with a yep. virtual set to get back at all of the pushing to make it more sure. realistic. Unfortunately, you look at the show now and it really is kind of video game level yeah. CGI. It's obvious now that this is this is CGI. Yeah, and it, it I mean assuming the original files are still in existence, which is is you know when it comes to whether, you know, movies or whatever is not always a guarantee. Uh, it could be re-rendered on a modern system. Yeah. Made it could to look remaster much it. much better, but for the time though, I mean when this came out, it was pretty mind-blowing for a TV show to have these kind of special effects yeah. rendered by a computer. It really was incredible at the time. Um, and of course, again, DS9 looked well like every, you know, TNG did at the time because they were using the same basic technologies. Going back to the character, we kind of went off, off track mm -hmm. there, but are any other, you mentioned Michael Garibaldi. And of course, you've got that, that comparison between Garibaldi and Odo, where uh -huh. they're both not quite the same as, say, shall we say, the higher ups as far as the way they look at the world. Yeah, they're they're both kind of they're both security guys. They're both kind of pragmatic and shady in mm -hmm. a way that they're they're uh, that their leaders are not necessarily. The similarities, though, I I, I don't think are overly strong between them because no. Odo has this. Sh he's I mean he's a shapeshifter. He's not even a human being, right? Um, and Garibaldi's just a guy with an it Boston Irish yeah. Italian working class background guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he's somebody you could find at kind of the corner bar after work, having a few. And of course, that yeah. was that's part of his problem, like you mentioned, is he had a yeah. little too many of a few. The only other characters, well, I mean, we've talked about the major points of comparison. These we haven't talked about some of the the non human characters, right? Um, you so we have because this is the United Nations, we have representatives of alien races, and there's mm -hmm. four major races. There are the Centauri, who are basically based on Italians. Right. Um, and like Italians, they're inheritors of a rich tradition uh, where they used to have an empire, but they don't anymore. Right. And so you have this kind of Mussolini-like thing in their culture where it's like, mm -hmm. we're going to recapture our former glory and rebuild our empire. Right. And so they, they start out as these kind of comic characters. You also then have the Narn. Mm -hmm. The Narn 
I don't know if they're based on, they're not I, really quickly identifiable as any human culture, but basically they are former victims right. of the Centauri. So they're, they had a primitive technological culture. The Centauri took over their planet. In a way, it's kind of like the Bajorans and exactly. the Cardassians. But um, you could think of the Narn as like former colonials mm-hmm. who have now achieved their independence. And now they're feeling their oats, they're being assertive, they want to expand, and so forth. And yep. they're kind of the rising threat at the start of the series. Mm-hmm. You then have the Mimbari, who, they're based on the Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. You look at them, they're clearly based on the Japanese culture. Their their philosophy is, is you know, modeled after Buddhism and Shintoism, and they Pearl Harbored us mm-hmm. a number of years ago, only they were the ones with the bomb, effectively. Yeah. Um, and they almost wiped us out. They were mm-hmm. on the verge of exterminating humanity. And then for mysterious religious reasons, they stopped. And we didn't know right. why for more than 10 years. Um, and then the final major race is the Vorlons, who are very powerful and very mysterious. And we've never even seen one. Right. Because they wear these, they call them encounter suits, that m- even mask the outlines Mm-hmm. Of what they look like. You can't even tell how many arms this thing has. Right. Um, and they're very mysterious and cryptic and ancient. And that's really mm-hmm. all we know about them. Yeah. Um, over the course of time, as things develop, uh, the, we have a significant amount of role reversal happening, especially with the Narns in the Centauri. Mm-hmm. Originally, it looks like the Narns are the rising threat and they're going to get revenge on the Centauri. Mm-hmm for colonizing them in the past and that's not what happens uh we have this other ancient race called the shadows starting to reassert itself we don't even know about them for the first half a season before Mm -hmm. we get any clue the shadows exist but they're this ancient lovecraftian race that's starting to reassert itself and um and they ally with they have a human representative very nice guy named mr morden he goes around to all the ambassadors and asks them a very simple question. What do you want? Mm. And he gets a variety of answers. This, incidentally, is something... J. Michael Straczynski has a degree in, in psychology. Oh, sure, sure. And one of the, the things that they would do in certain forms of psychology is ask questions that are hard to answer. The key ones being, who are you and what do you want? I mean, there's never a good answer to these, and so you can use them to strip away things. You say, well, who are you? Well, I'm Jimmy Aiken. Yeah, but who are you? Yeah. And you can, no matter what the person says, you can keep asking that question. Same thing with what do you want? What do you want? Oh, I want pepperoni pizza. No, but what do you want? And you mm-hmm. can keep digging for different layers. Um, and so the shadows question is, what do you want? And uh, Mr. Morden goes around asking everyone what do they want, and he eventually gets Londo, the Centauri ambassador, at a moment where he's feeling vulnerable, and he says, I want it all back. I want the Empire back. Mm -hmm. And he says, okay, we can do business. And so the Centauri get their Empire back, and the Narns go from being the rising villains to the pitiful victims. Yep. And so we have this role reversal where... Jakar, the Narn ambassador, who was originally very belligerent, belligerent and threatening and a lot like a Klingon, mm-hmm. ends up becoming a humble spiritual leader who grows through suffering. Yep. And meanwhile, Londo, who starts as a comic 
drunken ambassador down on his luck character becomes a sinister, powerful figure mm-hmm. who has a tragic redemption story where he has to sacrifice himself in the end. Yep. And so you have this change of the roles of the characters that's unlike what we had seen in Star Trek to that point. You knew mm-hmm. someone's a Klingon, he's a bad guy. Oh, yeah. Someone, you know, and that's it. There's We're never going to see Klingons as victims. Exactly. Yeah, it, 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 and that's. I think that is one of the attractions of this this series is it, it. It wasn't static. He didn't. He. I think he tried very much to not just have a. This character is this. Yeah, you know. But he there was development of all the characters. Eventually, we find out that the Vor that a, what happens in the galaxy is basically a conflict between the Vorlons and the Shadows. They're members mm-hmm. of these ancient races whose job. It, by mutual agreement, is to shepherd the younger races and help them develop. Right. And they, but the problem is they have different philosophies of how to do that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the shadows ask who ask what do you want and want to unleash people's desires, which produces chaos in order mm-hmm. to force evolution forward. Um, the Vorlons are very structured and law focused. Their question is, who are you? Right. And they um, they want to dictate how people should develop. The sh- so the the Vorlons represent excessive order. The shadows represent excessive chaos. And they're both trying to use their preferred philosophy to force the races or mm-hmm. help the races develop. And that leads to conflict. Right. With us as caught in the middle between these two ancient races, and we then have to find our way out of the conflict between yeah. our between our elders right and that's that's a very uh different again going to our comparison very different to, to ds9 where yes you've got these ancient races the wormhole aliens versus the pa wraith but that's more of a localized thing yeah and when when they like win the dominion war they just do it by military force which yep. is a fascinating story but eventually towards the end of the shadow war Sheridan realizes we can't fight our way out of this. There's no way we can compete militarily mm-hmm. and win. We can win skirmishes, but we cannot win the war militarily. We have to think our way out of this. Right. Which is then where my solution from the beginning of season two comes out. <laughs> <laughs> but it, and it, it's, it's interesting, too, with, with uh, Babylon 5, there's much more uproar because there's, you know, the Earth government is overthrown. Like you said, Sheridan becomes the, the, the head of the the interstellar alliance the earth alliance gets overthrown basically this is one of the things and it really worked until season five in each straczynski said we want to up the stakes in each series in each season of the show so the first season is basically learning the world we have a little bit of of character arc we have a little bit of hints of bigger things to come Season two, the war breaks out. Mm-hmm. Season three is the climate. The war builds. Things are really going badly. Season four um, was meant to be the end of the war, and season five was going to be the aftermath of the war. But it looked like they weren't going to get a season five, mm. and so they had to take the big wham episodes that would have been in season five and pull them forward into season four sure and that made season five a little bit of a letdown but even after they get out of the shadow war because the shadows had taken over earth gov mm-hmm. we now have the as a successor to the shadow war which is kind of abstract i mean yeah it's a big war but it's kind of off in space right now we have a civil war on yep. earth 
and our heroes have to knock over their own government. Right. And th- wow, is that powerful? It is. And so that would have, and that's originally what season five was going to be, but they had to pull those episodes forward. But it's still a, a really powerful story arc to even after we win the big interstellar battle. Now we have to win the battle back home, which is even more personal. Things aren't settled yet at that point. Yeah. This would be like we have to defeat the Dominion and then we go half, we have to conquer Earth. Right. And they're, they're, they're it's funny because there is one episode, uh, one two part of DS9 where they, they talk about this, where, you know, there's oh, uh, one of the shapeshifters is, or a couple of the shapeshifters have taken over places in the, the government, the Federation government on Earth. And interestingly, the same actor is Robert Foxworthy. Yeah. Yeah. He's in both D- Babylon 5 and DS9 doing the same role as a military leader trying to overthrow the Earth government. Figure that yeah. one out. They were un they were unhappy because he he played the admiral in Babylon Five first, and then yep. they were bringing him back to do a show, and so and he said, "I can't. I'm uh, doing this similar thing for DS Nine now. I'm not available that day." Yep. So they killed his character. Yep, they were done with <laughs> they him. Introduced. Oh yeah, he got <laughs> he got killed amidships when we took a laser blast here a few minutes ago. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Funny how that happens. <laughs> so. One of the themes we haven't touched on, and of course, you know, is something that's kind of near and dear to our hearts. Both series have a really interesting treatment of religion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Both of them do. And with Babylon 5, it's even more interesting knowing that J. Michael Straczynski is a fairly diehard atheist. Yeah, he does understand and appreciate religion, even though he's not personally religious. Mm-hmm. And we see that in a bunch of ways on, uh, on Babylon 5. Now, in both shows, we have this kind of spiritual race. In mm-hmm. um, in Deep Space Nine, it's the Bajorans, yep. and in Babylon 5, it's the Mimbari. And in both cases, the commander of the station is a religious figure for them. Captain Sisko right. is the emissary of the prophets, and reluctantly— and Jeffrey Sinclair, unbeknownst to him, is Valen, the founder of their religion, but he doesn't he's also reluctant. He doesn't know that yet. <laughs> and um and so you have that element that's the same on both shows, but then you have because Gene Roddenberry wouldn't let humans be religious mm-hmm. overtly in the Star Trek universe, even though you have hints of it with Cassidy Yates is clearly a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um the um in, you do have overtly religious characters in the Babylon 5 universe. Right. Jeffrey Sinclair, the original commander, was raised by Jesuits on Mars. Mm. Um, he is a Catholic. Um, Garibaldi is an agnostic. Not an atheist, but an agnostic. Right. Uh, Susan Ivanova is Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, uh, in the second season of Babylon 5, you have a group of Dominican monks come to the station and become permanent residents there specifically so they can talk to aliens about religion. They're going to share what God has done with our race, and they're mm. going to learn what God has done with other races. Hmm. And so they're there for ecumenical interreligious dialogue with aliens. Right. Um, and they become regular characters on the show. They're not prominent, but they're there in a bunch of episodes. Um so we have that. Each of the alien races has at least one religion. Some of them have more than one religion. Right. Uh, and later, this isn't in Babylon 5 itself, but it's in the same universe. In a later years after the show was off the air, they did a series of mini movies. Right. M-I-N-I, mini movies 
that each one is like 20 to 40 minutes long or something like that. They're called Babylon 5, The Lost Tales. They were released on DVD. And in the first one, we have an exorcism. Mm. Um, we, and it's, it's a real demon. <laughs> um, now, from J. Michael Straczynski's perspective, demons are some kind of alien or something. Yep. But he takes seriously the idea of demons and exorcists and stuff. It turns out, this is his theory, his on-show on explanation for this, demons are real, and they are all confined to Earth. Hmm. Earth is a prison planet for demons. <laughs> and, and so this one demon possesses a guy who then travels off Earth. And the demon then manifests himself, and you have fire and all kinds of stuff happening with special effects. And they, so they bring in a priest to deal with the demon. And the demon, as the priest talks to the demon, it's like the demon is going, oh, just say the name, say the name. And, you know, he's, he's, he's wanting to be exercised in the name of Jesus. Yep. And the priest realizes that's what he wants. He wants to be this set is, free. He wants to be set free off of the earth so he can roam the universe. This is a jailbreak. Yep. And so rather than exercising the guy, they sedate him and send him back to earth where he can be exercised in safety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very. I mean, it is very interesting to watch. And you watch, there's all kinds of earth religions that are are, yeah. are shown in one form or another. And it, it's, it's, it is very interesting. Of course, with the... DS9, it was very much the the main religion you saw was Bajoran. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. You, there might have been hints of little, other religions. Little I mean, Klingon. Fring, that's Frangies oh, and the found, with their money. The founder's no. religion. Yeah. yeah Frangis with their, with their money and things like that. Yeah, that's very much a religion for Frangis. So, but um, no, that was very, very interesting comparison. And then both series had kind of a, sh had shadow structures within the government. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we've talked yeah. on this this uh, on our podcast about Section Thirty One Star Trek, which did come out of DS Nine. That's where we initially heard about it. But Babylon Five had the Psychors in Bureau Thirteen, which was kind of their equivalent. And again, I wonder yeah. if this is one of these parallels that got borrowed. Section Thirty One, Bureau Thirteen. Hmm. Huh. Exactly. Are there any other uh, themes that you can think of? Kind of as a comparison. Those are sort of the major ones. By the way, one thing on the religion subject, there's actually, to give you an illustration of just how different this can be. Now, the exorcism one is a big one, but one that actually happened in the main series itself. There's a point where several religious leaders who are kind of running an underground railroad for telepaths come to Babylon 5. They know Brother Theo, the head of the monks on the station. Mm. And there's a, a rabbi and an imam and a Baptist pastor who are there, black Baptist pastor who are there. And while he's on the station, he leads a revival service <laughs> and we see the revival service. And he's uh, and and you have the main characters there, whether they're personally religious or not. They're attending the revival service. They're singing the hymn. Mm -hmm. And the hymn is one I believe Straczynski himself wrote because he was he wasn't always an atheist. He actually was a member of a religious commune for a while, mm. and he, he wrote uh, some hymns, and I, and I believe this is one of them. But the hymn is called The Rock Cried Out, No Hiding Place. Mm. And, um, and so you have this gospel uh, singer there who's, you know, 
I went to The Rock to hide my face, and The Rock cried out, no hiding place. And it's this great, energetic, you know, oh, yeah. black gospel hymn. It sounds awesome. And as we're seeing the revival happening, we're intercutting with one of the show's villains getting his comeuppance mm. in underground tunnels. He's going to The Rock to hide his face, and The Rock has not given him a hiding place. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to have to go back and watch uh Babylon 5. It's been a few years, and I, I know I enjoyed it. I'll have to go back and pull them out again. And to be fair, if you haven't watched Babylon 5, I recommend it. I know Jimmy does as well. However, the first season is a little draggy, to say the least. It has first season-itis, yeah. yeah. There are some key episodes in it, but there are others you could skip. Now, are, are there any particular episodes? If someone just wants to get a taste of Babylon 5, are there any episodes you could think of off the top of your head that would be good places to start, just to get the feel of it? So... In the first season, and it, it, because it's an episodic show, it's hard to just like pull things out of later right. seasons. But um, in the first season, the 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 first season, first episode, Midnight on the Firing Line, mm. gives you a sense of the political drama and the stakes that are involved. Then later in the first series, the midpoint is uh, an episode called Signs and Portents, where mm. we first meet Mr. Morden. And then the final episode of the first season, The Coming of Shadows, is where we things really start to fall off the rails. Sure. And then in the second season, there's – I'm blanking on the name of the episode. We could probably put it in the show notes. But it's right. the one where the Centauri Emperor visits the station and the war actually breaks out. Mm. And that is kind of a major early turning point. Um, that gives you a sense of where the show's going. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Definitely check that out. There's a, uh, another site here I, I found where the guy's gone through every episode and kind of related how important an episode is to the overall storyline. Anywhere from like, just don't even bother watching it to a uh, core episode, you know, mm -hmm. ranking like five stars and avoid it as like zero stars. It's, it's blank star. And there's, unfortunately, there's a few of those where they're kind of, kind of weak. Um, yeah. Actually, the I have to revise what I said. The end of the first season episode is called Chrysalis, and that's a major turning point episode. And then the one in the mid-second season where the war breaks out, that one is called The Coming of Shadows. Excellent. So that's worth checking out. Anything else you want to mention about either series or both series? Well, both series have a certain amount of age to them. They're mm -hmm. not quite as fresh. And when you see... That in the series depends. Most of it in B5 is in the first season, which is common yeah. for series. The first several seasons of Deep Space Nine I don't think are that great. No. Um, it's not really till the Dominion War kicks off that or where they start laying the foundation for the Dominion War that things get interesting on Deep Space Nine. But even later, just to, you know, there are some clunker episodes. Mm -hmm. in uh in babylon 5 they're not that common but they're there one of them is called uh gray 17 is missing and this is an episode where garibaldi goes to a um an undeveloped part of the station right where there is kind of a cult that is running things in this undeveloped kind of part of the station and they have a rubber suit monster that he needs to defeat <laughs> and and he defeats it in a way that is completely ridiculous. Um, earlier in the episode, they have an interesting scene where Garibaldi's talking to one of his assistants, 
and he's showing him a gun, an actual 20th century gun that he said belonged to like his grandmother when she was on the Boston police force. And the, as the aide is impressed by it. It's like, wow, a slug thrower, you know, something mm-hmm. it doesn't fire little energy packets. It fires actual bullets. And they right. make the point that, yeah, you don't want bullets on a space station mm-hmm. because they tend to puncture things and cause explosive decompression. Yeah. So that's not, why they use <laughs> energy weapons. But he, he puts the bullets for this thing in his pocket. And then when he's got to defeat the rubber suit monster, he he needs to propel the bullets. And so he rips a steam pipe off of the wall and puts the bullets in the steam pipe. And that causes the bullets to fire. <laughs> And defeat the rubber suit monster. And this is like the, you know, anything about guns. And this is the stupidest thing ever. You need a firing pin to get a bullet to fire. Putting it in a steam pipe is just going to burn your hand. It's not going to do anything for the bullet. Burn your hand and maybe shoot the entire shell about 10 feet and call it good. Exactly. So so, uh, a friend of mine pointed out. Okay, so this is J. Michael Straczynski, Hollywood liberal who doesn't know anything about guns, Mm -hmm. trying to understand things from a gun point of view. And he's trying (laughs) to give gun owners their props. He just doesn't understand how guns work. It's kind of like in a later episode of Deep Space Nine, you have Quark with this alien talking economics and getting him into the thrill of capitalism. Mm Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, the writers clearly don't understand how the free market works. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they're trying to, trying to enter the thought of people who do understand yes. it. And so they get props for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're trying. Well, that's best we can hope for. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's a good, good conversation. I hope that brought some interest to people uh, listening about Babylon 5. Again, it, I agree it's worth watching. So check it out. And thank you again for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek and all our podcasts here at SQPN. We do appreciate all of our listeners, everyone who who joins us for these podcasts, everyone who uh, who likes and, and has comments for us. Of course, we want to hear your feedback. You can do that w- uh, as well. We definitely want to hear what you have to say. Uh, we also greatly appreciate those who support us through our Patreon campaign. Uh, you can go to sqpn.com slash give and click the Patreon link to join our Patreon patrons in their uh, support of SQPN, because of course it does cost money to keep these podcasts going. Even if most of us are volunteers, it still costs money to make sure you can get these podcasts. And this week, I'd like to thank those uh, patrons, Sally H, Gregory F, Darius M, Gary H, and Mike K. Thank you and all of our Patreon uh, supporters and all those who support SQPN. We, we do greatly appreciate uh, greatly appreciate your support and hope you'll continue to share our podcasts with your friends and subscribe, and especially places like Spotify, where you can find all of our podcasts now. Well, Jimmy, thank you very much for coming on. This was a in- very enjoyable conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Father Corey. Live long and prosper. And who are you and what do you want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and again, Father Corey, thank you for, for joining us. And remember that Babylon 5 was our last best hope for peace.